So today we're going to discuss literary interpretation. And as I said at the start of the course, one of the large categories of question that is dealt with in aesthetics are questions about our understanding and our appreciation of works of art. And today we're going to deal with one of the largest questions or sets of questions uh, in terms of volume of philosophical material written about it, certainly, uh, and that is understanding literary works, uh, interpreting them. And for better or for worse, most of the discussion of literary interpretation in the philosophical literature has focused on what the role of the author's intentions are in determining the meaning of a literary work. Now, it's important to clarify at the start that this is not a debate about whether at least for those who think that literary works have a meaning. Uh, this is not a debate about whether the meaning of a work and what the author meant can coincide or not. Rather, what's at issue is whether the, what the author means or the author's intention determines what the work means. It's a matter of whether we can use our discoveries about the author's intention as evidence or as a standard by which to test an interpretation of a work. Uh, so that's, roughly speaking, what's at issue here. And this debate really took off, or is said at least nowadays to have taken off, in uh, 1946 with the publication of a paper entitled The Intentional Fallacy by Monroe Beersley and William Wimsatt. And as the title indicates, they regarded it as a mistake to use the author's intention as a standard for literary interpretation. On this view, it's not the author's intention that ever determines what the literary work means. And indeed, Beersley later expressed his position by saying, it's not evidence for an interpretation that it's, it gives the meaning that the author intended. Uh, and this, you can sort of understand, uh, caused a great deal of interest because it's natural to think, um, I, I mean, maybe not anymore, but uh, in certain contexts anyway, it's natural to think when you find an artwork puzzling or a literary work puzzling uh, that the author is trying to get something across or the artist is trying to get something across. They have a meaning in mind and that uh, it's natural then to think, well, if only the artists were here, we could just ask them, uh, what did they mean? And that would save us a whole lot of trouble. Um, if Beersley and Wimsatt are right, that's not how you do it. Um, obviously, most of the time when we're looking at artwork or reading a book, the artist is not there. The thought is, even if they were, that would not tell us what the work means. And this was a very attractive view at the time, in particular, because the dominant form of literary criticism was a school of criticism known as New Criticism, one of whose slogans or principles was to focus squarely on what's in the text. They had uh, the view that previous criticism had focused too much on the author's personality, the author's biography, information like this, and that critics uh, were sort of abandoning the task of criticizing the work that was in front of them and instead were engaging in biography or psychology or anthropology. So it uh, harmonized very much with the spirit of the times uh, as well as presenting 
uh, thesis that's interesting for various reasons. Now, reading this paper, it is kind of difficult to see what the argument is, actually, when you try and pick it out. Um, so what I'm going to suggest is a bit of a reconstruction. I think that they present us with a dilemma in various bits of the paper. So they say, okay, well, suppose that the author's intention does determine the meaning of the work. We're left with the question of how we figure it out. There's two possibilities. Either the author succeeded in fulfilling his intention in the work, or he did not. So take the case in which the author succeeded. If the author fulfills his intentions, then the poem, in their example, will show us what his intentions are. However, the implication seems to be, and again, it's, I must say it's not explicit, if the poem does show us what the author's intentions are, then discovering his intentions will not tell us what the poem means. The thought seems to be that it's actually the other way around. You have to first determine what the poem means to figure out the author's intentions in the case where the intentions are fulfilled, uh, not discover intentions to determine what the poem means. Uh, as I say, that's my reconstruction of it. That bit of it is not explicit, but that seems to be what they mean. So that's the case in which the author fulfills his intentions. Now let's suppose the intentions are not fulfilled. In that case, <coughs> they say, the poem will not be evidence of the author's intentions. And we have to go outside of the work in order to determine what the intentions were. So to the poet's letters, to diaries, interviews, things like that. But if we're going outside the poem, again, the implication seems to be that's not doing criticism. That's doing biography or journalism or what have you. Uh, it's not reading the poem anymore. It's not interpreting it anymore. So clearly, that's not discovering what the poem means. So in either case, the thought seems to be the author's intentions don't tell us what the poem means. They don't make it the case that the poem means what it does. Okay, so that, as I say, with a little bit of reconstruction, seems to be their principal argument. Now, Beardsley, uh, who's a philosopher, Wimsatt, I think was a critic rather than a philosopher, uh, but Beardsley revisited this theme a number of times later in his career. And on the full version of the handout, which I'm going to post on WebLearn, uh, I've gone through uh, three other arguments that he presents um, in his other works. I'm not going to go through all of them here. But I'll just mention one other one, because I think it gives kind of an insight into how he's thinking about this issue and also about what he sort of thing he thinks a literary work is. So in 1970, uh, in a book called The Possibility of Criticism, Beardsley presented a number of counterexamples to the claim that the author's intention, or what he took to be counterexamples, the claim that the author's intention determines the meaning of a work. So the argument seems to be that if there can be texts with meanings that were not intended by an author, then the author's intentions do not determine textual meaning. And he thinks, indeed, there can be such texts. 
So he says, there can be meaningful texts that have no author, such as certain typographical errors, or even computer-generated texts. He thinks the text that ends up being produced sometimes can be meaningful. I think he gives the example of the typographical error of being filled with righteous indigestion, uh, which you know you can sort of give a meaning to, uh, it seems, uh, he says. And anyway, you could imagine certain less controversial, uh, less metaphorical, I should say, examples. So the thought seems to be these texts can have meaning with no author, therefore uh, authorial intention does not determine the meaning. And even among authored texts, he thinks, there are cases in which they have meanings that the authors didn't intend. So an example that's become a bit not notorious he quotes a poem by the 18th century poet Mark Akenside, or Akenside, called The Pleasures of the Imagination, in which Akenside uh, talks of someone raising their plastic arm. He says, this line has changed its meaning since Akenside has died because the word plastic has changed its meaning. It now refers to this synthetic material that lots of stuff is made of. Akenside couldn't have intended this because he was dead when it changed its meaning. Therefore, author's intentions don't determine the meaning. Third counterexample he gives is that there can be even texts that are authored and the author is still alive, but which have meanings that the author is unaware of and therefore could not have intended. So double entendres are a good example here. Uh, they're embarrassing because you've produced a text or an utterance or whatever that has a meaning uh, that you weren't aware of uh, and therefore could not have intended. Okay, so those are some of Beardsley's arguments for the anti-intentionalist position. But there are others, and there are a number of varieties of anti-intentionalism, as we'll see shortly. Uh, Gerald Levinson provides another argument against the relevance of the actual author's intentions, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. So Levinson says that uh, there are certain categories of evidence or types of evidence that it's legitimate and ca other categories of evidence that it's not legitimate to expect a reader to have. And he thinks that sometimes in order to discover an author's intention, you would need evidence that it's not legitimate to expect the reader to have. So, for example, sometimes it's possible for uh, the author's intentions to be revealed only by private diaries, uh, private papers, conversations that he's had with his loved ones at night, things like this. Uh, it's not reasonable to expect that the reader of the text an author produces would have, or not legitimate, I think is what he says more often, to expect that a reader would have access to this evidence. Sometimes that's what you would need in order to discover an author's intentions. So if it were the case that the meaning was determined by author's intentions, then there wouldn't be this sort of implicit contract, as he puts it, between uh, author and reader, that certain demands are reasonable to put on the reader and certain ones are not. And 
the meaning of a work can't be something that you can only access by submitting to unreasonable demands of these kinds, knowing about his private diaries, knowing about his private conversations. Okay, and that sort of thought is repeated in a number of anti-intentionalist writings. Uh, also in the full version of the handout, I've given an argument by uh, Joseph Raz, who's much better known as a legal and political philosopher, to the same effect. Uh, similar to Levinson's argument, but he adds uh, some other points. So these are the anti-intentionalist criticisms of the relevance of intentions. What do they put in its place? What do they think determines the meaning of a work? I think broadly speaking, we can distinguish three kinds of theories that are current in the anti-intentionalist camp. One claim is that it's conventions of various kinds that determine what a literary work means. So linguistic conventions, literary conventions, these sorts of things. Beersley and Wimsatt don't call themselves conventionalists. They just call themselves anti-intentionalists. But I think it's not misleading to categorize them this way. Because their positive account of what determines literary meaning is that it's determined, as they put it, through the syntax and semantics of the language, through grammars and dictionaries, our habitual knowledge of the language, and the history of word use. Uh, so the history of word use may, is maybe in tension with classifying them as conventionalist. Um, but otherwise, that seems to be basically their view. Now, they qualify their view in a number of ways, their positive account. So they point out that, of course, the author's own use of the words in private, even in the private meanings that he and his circle may attach to the words, is part of the history of those words' use. And for that reason, that can be drawn upon as part of the evidence for what they mean. So the author is a member of the public, like anybody else, speaker of the language, like anybody else, and if the way words are used determines what they mean, then the way he uses them, in that sense, can help determine what they mean. Uh, but the thought seems to be just that that's only part of the evidence, and the fact that the author is using those words carries no special weight here. It's just part of the evidence, part of the whole history of the use of the language. And in particular, it's not because the, uh, there, it's evidence of what the author intended that it's okay to draw upon that evidence. Rather, it's because it's part of the history of the use of the word uh, that it's okay to draw upon that evidence. And the history of the use of the word is part of what determines what the works in which that word occurs mean. Uh, and they also make the point that it's not as though either that knowing about the author's intentions can't give us clues about what to look for in the text. So uh, you might not have thought to, to try and find a certain meaning in a text, but learning of the author's intentions might prompt you to do so, uh, provided that you find it, and not based on the author's in intentions in the way the intentionalist would claim, uh, then that's perfectly legitimate. So author's intentions can be clues for what to look for, that's okay, but they don't determine what it means. They don't make it the case that the text has the meaning that it does. 
so that's the Beardsley-Wimsatt version of conventionalism. Levinson uh, supports a view that he calls hypothetical intentionalism. Uh, I think it's accurate to describe him as an anti-intentionalist. He distinguishes himself from anti-intentionalists, but I think really he's just distinguishing himself from, himself from Beardsley here. So he thinks, as I mentioned, that meaning can only be determined by what could be found out by someone with, with evidence that it's legitimate to expect them to have. Again, so not private conversations and diaries, for example. So he, he thinks that, in fact, the meaning of a work is what would be, is the intention that would be attributed to the author, the best hypothesis about what the author's intention would be, that you arrive at using only evidence that it's legitimate to have. So it's a bit like in a jury trial when the judge says to the jury, don't consider that bit of evidence because it was obtained illegally or uh, it's otherwise inadmissible. Just arrive at the decision that the admissible legal evidence supports. Now, that's so even if the illegal evidence shows something different, that if you were to take the illegal evidence into account, you would arrive at a different verdict. In the case of a court setting, uh, juries are not supposed to do that. They're only supposed to consider admissible evidence. Uh, even if taking all the evidence, admissible and inadmissible, together would lead you to a different conclusion. Levinson thinks something similar is going on with literary interpretation, that you're only, the meaning can only be what you would arrive at, the hypothesis you would arrive at about the author's intentions using only legitimate evidence. That's why it's called hypothetical intentionalism, because it might turn out that the best hypothesis about what the author's intentions are that you arrive at using only legitimate evidence is different from what the author's intention actually is. Or indeed, different from the best hypothesis you'd arrive at using all the possible evidence, or all, even all the available evidence. Uh, okay, might say a little bit more about that later, but that's, in summary, his view. He's trying to capture the truth in the thought that the intention is relevant to determining the meaning uh, without going so far as to say it simply does determine the meaning. Another family of anti-intentionalist theories have recently been dubbed value-maximizing theories. It's a little bit might be a little bit misleading to call them value-maximizing, but the basic thought common to them is that one thing that counts in favor of an interpretation excuse me, is that it makes the work looked good. So other things being equal, two interpretations that account for all the same things equally well, but from one of which it follows that the work is good, and from the other of which it follows that the work is not so good or even bad, in a situation like that, you go with the one that makes the work look better, or from which it follows that the work is better. Uh, so it's, it's not, I stress, the thought that it's enough that it make the work look good that it, uh, for it to be a good interpretation. 
the thought just is that among the factors we've got to consider are whether it does make the work look good and how much weight you want to put on that and how that interacts with other factors can vary in your theory but that's one thing that uh, is common to these kinds of theories and so Joseph Raz, as I mentioned uh, is a proponent of this view uh, of literary interpretation and so he thinks that as he puts it the meaning or meanings of a work are what is given by an explanation which as he puts it adequately covers the significant aspects of the work is not inconsistent with any aspect of the work explains those aspects of the work it chooses to focus on and, and this is the key point that makes it a value-maximizing theory, best accounts for the reasons that there are for us to pay attention to it as a work of art of its kind. He sometimes caches this out by saying uh, that interpretation should reveal why the work is important. So what does he offer in favor of this view? Um, well, he thinks one thing in its favor is that it explains how interpretations or explanations of a work's meaning uh, differ from other explanations of aspects of a work. So this is something that any theory had, a distinction that any theory of interpretation had better respect and thought is. So in his example, uh, to illustrate that not all explanations of aspects of, work, of a work are interpretations, he says you could show that Hamlet's behavior is perfectly consistent with the laws of physics as far as we know them and he says this might even be a true explanation of Hamlet's behavior but it would not be an interpretation it would not be an explanation of what the work means he thinks that what makes an explanation into an interpretation of a literary work is that it gives us the reasons that there are for paying attention to Hamlet, what's important about the play. And he thinks a second reason in favor of his view, apart from the fact that it gives us a way of marking the distinction between interpretations and other explanations, is that his view is the best explanation of how new or innovative interpretations can become possible when general truths about the world are discovered. So he gives the example of psychoanalysis. It became a very well-known interpretation of Hamlet during the 20th century to interpret Hamlet's behavior in terms of the Oedipal complex uh, proposed by Freud. And Raz says, what What's going on here? On one view, you could think that what's happening is that when theories like this are discovered, they reveal the meaning of the work that has been hidden all this time. And it was only with the discovery of the theory that this meaning of Hamlet became manifest to anyone. And although he admits that sometimes the meaning of a work can be hidden for a while from everyone in a way like that, 
he doesn't think it's plausible to say that the meaning of a work can be hidden from everyone in, any, in every case. And in particular, in this case, he doesn't think that's plausible. Uh, he doesn't sort of spell it out, but the thought seems to be that uh, it's implausible that it, the work could be around for so long and this meaning be completely hidden from everyone. And uh, the support he gives for that is to say, this is like supposing uh, that there was an English word or an expression that was around for a really long time and had a meaning that was hidden from absolutely everybody who was using it. So nobody knew what the meaning was of this English word uh, until somebody came along with a theory that suddenly revealed it. He thinks it's analogous to that, and that's why he thinks it's implausible to suppose that, as he puts it, with psychoanalysis we're enabled to retrieve the meaning of the work, the hidden meaning of the work. Um, his theory, he thinks, explains this, these kinds of innovative interpretations better. He thinks that with theories like psychoanalysis, what happens is that the meaning changes. So it's not that there was a meaning there all along that became uncovered, it's that the work acquired a meaning. And the reason it acquired a meaning, on his theory, is that we acquired new reasons to pay attention to it with the discovery of psychoanalysis. The work became important for reasons that it hadn't been important before with the discovery of, for example, psychoanalysis. Now, he's not committing himself to the claim that the psychoanalytic interpretation of Hamlet is a sound one. He's just using this as an example of the type of thing that he does think <clears throat> is possible. And he thinks this is how you explain it when it happens. Uh, that the meaning changes because our reasons to pay attention to it change, and interpretations, unlike other kinds of explanation, reveal the reasons we have to pay attention to it account for, as he sometimes puts it, the reasons we have to pay attention to it. Okay. So those are a uh, very, as I say, quick overview of a large field uh, of theories, anti-intentionalist theories. The view that it's not the author's intention, but something else that determines the meaning of a work. Now I'd like to get into some of the intentionalist replies to this. So for a long time it was pretty much accepted that uh, anti-intentionalism was right. Um, and as far as I know, in literature departments, I think that's still the dominant view. Um, but within at least analytic philosophy of art, uh, there's been uh, a lot of people opposed to anti-intentionalism, who think that there actually is some truth in the idea that the author's actual intentions determine the meaning of the work. So some of the earliest criticisms of Beersley and Wimsatt's article... Oh, before I go on to those, I should say there's a distinction you want to make here between what's sometimes called extreme actual intentionalism and moderate actual intentionalism. I don't know if anybody holds the view that's called extreme actual intentionalism. This is associated with, a lot of people like to use this example, uh, Humpty Dumpty in Alice in Wonderland, who at one point says, uh, when, I say, when I said just now, there's glory for you, 
that meant that's a nice knockdown argument because I can make words mean whatever the heck I want. This is sometimes taken to be an expression of an extreme actual intentionalist view, namely that being intended is just a sufficient condition of being the work's meaning. Doesn't matter what the words are, doesn't matter what the literary conventions are, uh, none, of that else ma none of that matters. It's just, if you intend it, that's what it means, end of story. That's a sufficient condition of that being what it means. Now, as I say, I am not aware of anyone in the real world who holds this view. Uh, E.D. Hirsch is sometimes classified as an extreme actual intentionalist, but I think it's demonstrably false to regard him as an extreme actual intentionalist for reasons I'll get to in a second. So for the most part, what we're talking about is moderate actual intentionalism. And the variations on this view are that sometimes, yes, the author's intentions do determine what the work means. And you might think, if it does have a meaning, it always is determined by what the author's intentions are. But there are limits on which intentions of the author can become the work's meaning. So, as E.D. Hirsch himself puts it, actually, the author's verbal meaning is limited by the linguistic possibilities. So there are certain meanings that the text can possibly support, and on an actual intentionalist view, it's the author's intention that if the author intends one of those meanings that the text can support, then that becomes the text's meaning. Uh, that breaks the tie, so to speak, between the range of possible meanings the text could have and the meaning it actually and determines it as the meaning it actually has. Okay, so that's the landscape. Um, now, what are some of their replies to Beardsley and Wimsatt's criticisms? Well. Early reply, important reply to Beersley and Wimsatt, was offered by Frank Chaffee in, I think, 1963. And Chaffee raises a number of points and takes them up on a number of their, the examples they give in particular. Uh, some of the replies he makes are these. So he says, it's certainly true that often we continue to think that an interpretation is right even when we discover that the author disavows it. Uh, he says that is a familiar phenomenon, and that is familiar enough anyway. That's the sort of thing that lends credibility to the anti-intentionalist view. But Chaffee says that doesn't mean that the author's intention doesn't determine the meaning. All it shows is that sometimes the text is better evidence of his intention than the stuff he says after the fact. So you've got to distinguish between what the author is telling you about what the text means or what his intention was and what his intention actually was. And what he tells you is just one bit of evidence uh, for his intention. The text itself, in some circumstances, can be better evidence of what his intention was than what he tells you. 
And Shafi thinks this is particularly true when the effect produced by a text is especially complex. So he thinks in situations like this, if the author says, well, I didn't intend to have that effect, sometimes it's really not plausible to think that effect could have come about by accident and not been intended. And it's much more plausible to think the author is, for whatever reason, self-deceived or not telling the truth about uh, what his intentions were in that case. There's a point about the complexity of effects and the unlikelihood that those could just be accidental in some cases. He thinks that's the sort of case uh, of this kind. And second, he thinks that anti-intentionalism ignores the fact that we just don't stand in the same relation to say, a poem, after we learn that the author could not possibly have intended a certain meaning. So, Blake's famous hymn, Jerusalem, where he talks about the dark satanic mills, often taken to be a complaint against the Industrial Revolution. Uh, but apparently, uh, there's pretty conclusive evidence that Blake couldn't have been talking about uh, industrial mills in that line when he's talking about dark satanic mills. And Chaffee says, look, discovering this just, do just does change how we relate to the poem. Um, and anti-intentionalism fails to capture that fact. So too, Chaffee makes a point that would relate to what Levinson said, although Levinson was writing much later, about this matter of legitimate evidence, what we can be reasonably expected to know. He says that uh, it's not really clear where we would draw the line or what makes a piece of evidence legitimate. And Levinson, for his part, is actually quite open about this. He says, I don't have a principled answer to the question of what makes evidence legitimate. All I mean is that there are some clear cases of illegitimate and clear cases of legitimate evidence. But Chaffee gives the example of a particularly innovative or brilliant interpretation of a work offered by a critic. And he thinks, this is exactly the sort of thing that can enhance our understanding of the work, that we uh, can draw on in order to interpret it for ourselves. But it may be something that didn't occur to anybody and wouldn't have occurred to somebody who wasn't particularly brilliant or imaginative uh, and the question arises, Chaffee says, well, is it legitimate for us to draw on that evidence? Could we be legitimately expected to have that particularly creative, ingenious interpretation in our evidence base when interpreting the work? He says it's not clear that there's a good answer to that that will help people who want to appeal to the idea of legitimate evidence. So those are a few of Chaffee's points. Uh, Richard Volheim is also quite well known for some of his responses to anti-intentionalist concerns, particularly the kind raised by Beersley and Wimsatt. So Volheim says, look, Beersley and Wimsatt in their argument, which I described to you at the start, assume that if an author's intentions are not fulfilled, then they can't possibly be relevant to interpreting the work. That getting into them is just doing biography, uh, it's changing the subject, Whatever it is, it's not enhancing our understanding of the work. But Volheim 
says, actually, there's lots of cases where, uh, first of all, knowing that an author's intentions were unfulfilled can enhance our understanding of the work. So, Volheim gives the example of a novel by Dostoevsky. I think it's The Idiot, but I'm not sure. Check on that. In which he says the character of Prince Mishkin was intended by Dostoevsky to be a portrayal of a perfectly good man. And Volheim says he failed in portraying a perfectly good man. Nevertheless, knowing that this was his intention can affect how we read the work. It can cause us to notice character traits of the work of Prince Mishkin that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to see, or at least wouldn't have otherwise seen. <clears throat> so knowing of the unfulfilled intentions of the author is not as irrelevant as Beersley and Wimsatt's claim. So too he thinks that knowing about intentions that the author or artist originally had and then changed uh, can also affect how we understand the work. So he gives the example of the sculptor Rodin, who was commissioned to do a sculpture of the novelist Balzac. Originally, he intended to make it a nude, and partway through the process, he changed his mind and decided to portray Balzac as clothed. Well, Volheim says, this is the sort of thing that can give us an insight into how uh, Rodin sees the monumental sees monumental sculpture. And uh, so here's another case where that's not even an intention the author tried to fulfill in the end. The artist tried to fulfill in the end. Uh, but knowing about it, so says Volheim, can affect how we understand the work. So those are some of the examples of the kind of counterattack that was offered by the intentionalist writers. What are the views that they've developed? Well, Edie Hirsch, who I've mentioned a couple times already, was one of the earliest, most prominent intentionalists uh, to reply to Beersley and Wimsatt. And he argues that the author's intention is the only thing that can supply us with a good standard for what the meaning of a work could be. So he says, Beersley and Wimsatt want to say that it's the conventions of language that determine the meaning of the work. But they fail to recognize that the conventions of language uh, permit multiple readings of virtually any sequence of words. They don't determine a meaning in almost all cases, he says. So in some of his examples, uh, the sentence... Even a sentence as simple as, I am going to town today. That sequence of words. He says, well, depending on which of those words you stress, it can have a range of different meanings, consistent with what the conventions of language would permit. Or in another example he gives, uh, my car ran out of gas. He says, well, there's one natural way of reading this, but the conventions of language also you permit you to read it as... Uh, the train car emerged from a cloud of argon. Uh, in his somewhat far-fetched example, he says the only reason that we go for the first reading, the normal reading, that it's out of fuel, 
is because of the author, reference to the author's intentions. We know they couldn't possibly have intended it to mean my train car emerged from a cloud of argon. Rather, we know they intended it to mean that ran out of fuel. The basic thought being that sequences of words can only be given a meaning by a human consciousness, as he puts it, Conventions of language don't determine what a sequence of words can mean. And I think he must be implying here, too, that it wouldn't be plausible to think that, the, that every meaning that a sequence of words is permitted by the conventions to have uh, is a meaning that it does have on this occasion. Only the author's intention can select from those meanings it's permitted to have and to provide a standard to determine the meaning that it does have. And he gives a few other arguments, which I'll put on the full version of the handout, as to why it can't be uh, the judgment of sensitive reader and various other things that select what the meaning of the work is. Uh, now, within the moderate actual intentionalist camp, which I say is pretty much everybody in the real world who's an intentionalist, uh, there is a division between people who think that being intended is a necessary condition of being the literary work's meaning and those who don't think that. So Hirsch thinks the meaning of a work is what the author intended. So that means that if it's got a meaning at all, then it was intended by the author. And this, I think it's fair to say, is Noel Carroll's view as well, his view, which he calls modest actual intentionalism. But you could have a different view. You could say other things sometimes can determine the meaning of a work uh, without the author's intention. So this is Robert Stecker's view. He says sometimes the author's intention determines the meaning of the work, but sometimes as he puts it, convention and context at the time of utterance determines the meaning of the work. If the author fails to fulfill his intention, his meaning intention, the work may still have a meaning because the conventions of language and uh, the context may well determine uh, and probably, I don't mean that he's just saying the conventions of language either. Conventions of literature uh, may be relevant too. May well determine what the meaning of the work is. So you can go either way on this among moderate actual intentionalists. Okay, so as I say, debate about role of intention determining meaning has played a very large role in the discussion of literary interpretation. Uh, but what's common to all of these views is the assumption that literary works have a meaning. And some have doubted that. So Steinhagen Olsen has argued that, well, in effect, that literary works are not the kind of things that have meaning. He tends to put this by saying it's not useful to focus on the concept of literary meaning. 
But I think his arguments are effectively in support of the view that there isn't such a thing. I think his arguments, if they're successful, show that the notion of the meaning of a poem, talking about the meaning of a poem or a play, of a novel, is a kind of category mistake. Uh, that poems, plays, novels are not the kinds of things that, it's e that can have a meaning any more than an idea is the sort of thing that can be green. That's an overt category mistake. This is a subtler category mistake that we tend to fall into, uh, Olson thinks. And he says, it's very natural to talk about the meanings of metaphors, sentences, utterances, uh, but it's distinctly odd, it would be distinctly odd to ask, what is the meaning of Macbeth? So he says, if you were a student, ask this question on an exam, you would be justified in complaining you're not sure what kind of answer is being expected. What is the meaning of Macbeth? Uh, and I think it's perhaps significant that he uses a particular example here because we're very used to talking about the meanings of poems, the meanings of novels. But when you slot in the name of a particular novel, play, poem, uh, at least in one hearing, one reading, it does sound a bit odd to say, what is the meaning of uh, Oliver Twist? Things like that. What is the meaning of Macbeth in his example? So it's that oddness that he uses as one point. Another thing he mentions is that literary works don't have the kinds of meaning-producing features that are analogous to those possessed by sentences, metaphors, and utterances. So take, for example, a sentence. Standard sort of view is that the meaning of a sentence is a function of, or arises out of, the meanings of the words and how they're combined. Those two factors. Words have a certain meaning, combined in a certain way. From that arises the meaning of the sentence. Olson says, it's very unclear what the analogous parts of a literary work would be, or what the, modes of, the analogous mode of combination would be. So as he puts it, uh, a speaker of a language tends to be able to identify, as he puts it, the minimal semantic unit of a sentence. So the smallest part that's meaningful. So you go down to the level of the word, that has a meaning. Down to the level of a, two letters at the end of the word, that doesn't have a meaning. That's the kind of thought. But it's not really clear how you would do that if you were trying to model literary works on sentences, at least. Uh, and so there's, that's another reason to be suspicious of the claim that literary works have meanings. Uh, now, I'm not going to stick my neck out here and say Olson is right, um, but I do, think there's, I do think his view is worth considering, taken seriously, uh, and it would be attractive and kind of convenient if it were right, because often when uh, debates in philosophy are very intractable, people often say, well, sometimes that's because both sides are making an assumption that's false. Uh, and so there's a certain amount of attraction to the idea that maybe that's what's going on 
in the debate about literary interpretation. Both sides have wrongly assumed that literary works have meanings, and from there arises all the difficulties and confusions. Now, I don't know if that's possible, because you might say, well, if they don't have meanings, they have something. Uh, There's something that critics are doing, and maybe all these same problems would arise again once we recognized what that is. So as I say, I don't want to stick my neck out here for the truth of his theory or for the notion that it would just dissolve all these kinds of problems. But I think there's some things you can think of in favor of it. So think of the kinds of reasons that lead us to say that literary works do have meanings. I think one thing that leads us to say that is that it's possible to understand a literary work. It's possible to misunderstand it. It's possible to understand it better than you did before. But the fact that you can understand something doesn't entail that understanding it is a matter of grasping a meaning that it has. So this is clear if you think about all kinds of contexts in which we talk about understanding something. So two people who love each other might be described as understanding each other very well. That doesn't seem to be a case of grasping the meaning of the other person. Similarly, understanding a natural phenomenon, like the tides, something like this, doesn't seem to be a case of grasping the meaning, or a meaning, of the phenomenon. We can talk about understanding subject matters, like economics. If you understand economics, or say you fail to understand economics, it's not because you fail to grasp the meaning of economics. So the fact that it's possible to understand literary works doesn't commit us, at least, to the view that literary works have meanings, nor does the fact that literary works have parts or elements that themselves have meanings commit us to the view that literary works themselves have meanings. So the words of which they're made have meanings, sentences, let's say, have meanings. Uh, But it doesn't follow from that that the work itself has a meaning. I've marked a lot of essays, and I don't think I've ever asked anybody, what did your essay mean? I've asked people, what did you mean by this passage? Things like this, or what, does, what did you argue in it? Um, but again, it does sound a bit odd, just like in the Macbeth case, to ask, what does your essay mean? Uh, the mere fact that it's made up of meaningful parts doesn't commit us to that. A further striking fact is that in this debate, Almost invariably, the examples philosophers use to support their points are not, if they're examples of the meaning of anything, don't tend to be examples of the meaning of a work. So, uh, an example Beardsley and Wimsatt discuss is whether the phrase moving of the earth in one of John Donne's poems is about earthquakes or about the rotation of the earth. And that's the sort of thing you might debate. Uh, But if that's a question about meaning, it's clearly not a question about the meaning of the poem. It's a question about the meaning of that phrase within the poem. Likewise, Raz talks about the meaning of the color blue in paintings of the Madonna, in Renaissance paintings. He says it symbolizes virginity. 
Well, once again, that's a case of the meaning of the color of her cloak. It's not a question about the meaning of the painting. And lastly, and here I'll just go through it quickly, if you look closely at what critics do when they render a work understandable to us, uh, it's not plausible to construe a lot of these operations as cases of discovering the meaning of anything. So, talking about the theme of a work, say if you say the th a theme of Othello is jealousy. Well, the theme of a work is not its meaning. You don't say Othello means jealousy. The theme of Othello, a theme of Othello, is jealousy. Uh, but it's slurring over important distinctions to equate the theme with the meaning. Likewise, critics often postulate facts about the world of a work to explain puzzling features of the story. So they try and figure out why Hamlet procrastinated, for example. But that's not obviously explaining the meaning of it. Now, there may be some sense in which it's trying to fill out the content of it or to explain why it has a certain content. But once again, it's not clear that this is a case of trying to discover the work's meaning. And similarly, critics talk about the function of a character. So in the first part of Henry IV, people often say that Hotspur functions as a foil to Prince Hal because he's hot-headed and Prince Hal is cool and calculating. Okay, that's definitely what they do, and we understand it better, but it seems very unnatural to describe that as a case of, describing, of explaining the meaning of Hotspur. Explaining how he functions is not automatically a case of explaining meaning. And so too, categorizing or contextualizing works and characters in it. Critics talk about a uh, character being of a stock type. So might describe someone as a, a character as a femme fatale or the braggart soldier, things like this. Again, that helps us understand it, but it's not clear that it's a matter of discovering the meaning. Uh, so as I say, I'm I haven't thought about this enough to stick my neck out and say Olson's right or that this is the right way to think about it, but I do think that it deserves further thought than it's received. Thanks very much.